Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Today, I'm delighted to say I'm speaking with Amy Edmondson. She's a professor of leadership at Harvard Business School and the author of The Fearless Organization. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I, I'm delighted. And of course, what you've become famous for is this idea of psychological safety. And I, so I wonder if for our audience, we start there, what, what do we mean by psychological safety and then spread out from there? Yeah, so psychological safety is a perception that you can speak up at work, meaning you can ask questions, you can admit mistakes, you can offer crazy half-baked ideas, and you're fairly confident that your colleagues won't think less of you, or that, you know, that they will accept your humanness in a way, you know, that we're, that we're all fallible human beings. And if we're committed to the, you know, the, the shared work, um, it's absolutely vital that we participate and, and it's hard for us to participate. So that was a little bit long winded, but psychological safety is that wonderful. And I hate to say it, but sometimes rare sense that I can be myself here. Yeah. And, and the other thing that you added, you offered in the book, which I quite liked was People feel safe and safe and compelled to speak. Yes, I mean they they recognize. I mean I don't think that's necessarily a part of psychological safety, but it's a part of what works, right? So that I feel able. Psychological safety says I feel able to speak up. I think I feel compelled when I care, when I care about my colleagues, when I care about the customer, when I care about the mission. You know, when there's some you know reason to exert. So it's right. almost that, that combination. You need the safety and the motivation to do great work. Right. And that, okay, and that those two together is is what is what works in organizations. And and in terms of performance, and that's where it starts, right? That you you discovered this as a factor in team performance. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the genesis of the discovery of it? Uh, sure. You know, in fact, I had um, early in, in my PhD program in my in graduate school, I had been I'd been quite interested in the research in aviation um, that was done in the early 90s, late 80s that basically said, you know, cockpit crews you know, in, in, in commercial air travel, um, when they work better as teams, you know, when they have some of the trappings of a good team, they make fewer mistakes as teams. So even if an individual does something wrong, um, his or her colleagues will catch and correct it, right? And, they, and they'd studied this in simulators, so it wasn't, I mean, there was black box studies as well, but they, they studied people, they put teams into simulators, and they would, you know, literally be um, more resilient and able to perform well when, when they were good teams. And so I wanted to replicate that essential finding in healthcare delivery in some hospitals where I would find, I wanted to study teams and assess them with a really essentially the same team diagnostic and, and show that better teams made fewer medication errors. That seemed like a valid hypothesis. Fast forward, when I got the data and, and I collected the team assessment data, but trained medical investigators were going week by week to collect data on errors. Um, I found, you know, first the good news, I found a significant relationship. And I thought, great, you know, I publish, I've got this paper, all is well. And then I noticed that the correlation was in the wrong direction. 
meaning that what the data seemed to be saying was that better teams, according to a validated survey instrument, had more, not fewer, medication errors. Now, at first glance, that just didn't make any sense. You know, why? Because healthcare delivery is very interdependent. You know, you, you really do have to work. You have 24-7 care. You've got to be very collaborative and, and working very closely and effectively with, with your colleagues to deliver safe care. So it made no sense until I suddenly thought, wait a minute, maybe, maybe the better teams aren't making more errors. Maybe they're more willing and able to talk about them. So that in a sense, I was reframing the dependent variable and saying, you know, this might not be error rates. This might be detected error rates. You know, that the, when, when, when you don't want to have your errors found out, found out, it's often, you know, quite easy to kind of just hide them. It's busy and crazy and, and, and you don't necessarily have to raise your hand and say, hey, you know, here's, a, here's an error that I or we made. So that was a kind of insight that was difficult to prove in that particular setting, but it started me in a whole new direction, right? It started me saying, you know, if that was right, it, you know, it was, clearly we understand that people might want to hide their mistakes, but why was it systematically different in different teams in the same organization, in this case, the same hospitals? And so that made me think, well, you know, maybe this thing, this, and I, I didn't have a name for it yet, but this interpersonal climate, if you will, really does vary inside organizations from team to team, right? Not just yeah. between organizations, but inside organizations. And so the next study I did, I wanted to show on purpose that that might be so, and it worked out quite well. And the next study was in a manufacturing setting, so very different context. Yeah, and, and I think, well, certainly I resonate with that, that, that I can be within the same organization, but in certain teams it sucks and nobody's enjoying it, and, and yet down the hallway, a team could be having a huge amount of fun and doing right, really well. Right, exactly. right, right. So, so that, it, it's the subculture that counts. Yes. Not, not the wider culture. Right. The wider yeah. culture matters too, but the subcultures are vitally important for sort of how we, how we work together. You know, yeah. Interpersonal risks that we either take or don't take. And especially the interpersonal risk of being human, you know, right. rather than being perfect. Right, and it correlates with this idea that you know one one toxic employee kind of has this impact to to all of those around them, and so you could see that this might correlate with that that evidence that suggested just it's a few few people in that team to to really impact on the subculture of that. Yes, there's a real asymmetry too. You know, it can take a little bit of time to build up that that sense of trust and safety and respect, um, and then it can be killed, you know, so easily by one person. Um, you know, yelling or, or saying something deeply hurtful uh, to another, or you know, uh, you know, and, and a sort of um, so it's. Um, I think that asymmetry matters. Like we all, we have to, we have to work hard to maintain a climate, and it's really a climate where learning is possible. You know, where contribution is possible. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm interested. So, the, just to, to rewind a little bit to this. This idea that on the one hand you're you're measuring performance as being good, but yet you've got this high error rate. Just tell us a little bit about that instrument. Right. That yes. So, like for a good 
Yeah, I mean, so what I would say is, in, in fact, we did not have any objective performance data for those teams in the hospital study. But it was just, um, uh, it was not possible, at least in that, in that study, to make any conclusions about who was actually a higher performer. So I came out more with a hypothesis than a conclusion. So I came out of that study, you know, back in the, in the mid-90s. I came out of that study saying, I believe that interpersonal climate affects learning behavior, which should affect performance. But that was all I could do. I could say, I believe this. So then my next study, which I studied 51 teams of four kinds, management, sales, new product development, and production, frontline factory teams. Um, so I had 51 teams distributed among those four categories. And in, and in this study, I measured, again, the properties of the teams, the, the learning behaviors in the teams, the psychological safety in the teams, and their performance in two ways. One, their self-rated performance. And then two, I got the, either the recipient of their work or the manager of that work to rate the performance from, from a distance. And in that study, I was able to show that psychological safety enabled learning behavior, which in turn uh, enables performance. Right. Okay. So you had that, that objective measure. Um, yeah. And then, and then what's interesting in your book, and I had actually hadn't realized this, that there's the, the Google project Aristotle <laughs> that found your work, right? So yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So that was a stunning uh, surprise and development for me because you know I had been doing this work and largely publishing in academic journals and, and a few sort of, you know, books or articles for practitioners in, in management, but not, you know, not, clearly not um, with the same reach that Google has. So then um, in 2016, Google had a widely publicized study called Project Aristotle. And the reporter, a New York Times reporter named Charles Duhigg wrote about it in a very beautiful New York Times magazine cover story. And so it got a lot of attention. And, and essentially what Google did was set out, led by a scientist called Julia Rozovsky, to figure out, you know, what explains persistent performance differences across teams at Google. And, you know, they have lots of data and lots of analytic um, skill, and they put in everything they had access to, you know, uh, and, where they went to school, you know, mix, IQ, you name it, right? And, and nothing explained team performance until they encountered, to their words, the concept of psychological safety in the academic literature, which was, of course, my early work, uh, not the medical study, but the manufacturing study. And they used the variable I had developed, and that ended up explaining a lot of the performance differences. So it got a lot of attention. And then suddenly, you know, 20, 20 years, almost 17 years after I first published it, um, a lot of people started talking about it, you know, in the online sphere. And, and we're talking about Google's, you know, discovery of psychological safety. So that, that's one of the many things that prompted me to write this uh, recent book. Right. Yeah. And now, well, and, and it's right that now you're getting the, yeah, the recognition, of course, but well, you know, just a, it's a thrill, really. You know, it's a thrill mm -hmm. that uh, that Google, which has a great deal more, um, you know, analytic prowess um, than most of us, that they sort of reconfirmed that this is just a very important workplace variable. 
Yeah, and, and it's interesting because a, a former guest on the show works in the, in the software development space, and he's developed this, this framework for managing software teams and he calls it modern agile. And he talks about uh, psychological safety, not as a principle of software development, but as a prerequisite. So wow. he believes it's you know, so important that we don't want to talk about any of the other principles unless we've established that. And so, I, you know, this is this seems to be bleeding out into, well, but that's one sphere. I, I would not be surprised if, if many other spheres really start picking this up as a, almost as a ground, a grounding principle on which you build everything else. I agree. I agree with him, and especially for agile ways of working, right? because in a sense, agile is fearless, right? Because you have to be, you have to, by definition, be taking interpersonal risks. You've got to try things that you don't know for sure that they're going to work at, at the outset. Right. Exactly. And um, back to the Google point. And you mentioned James the Moore in the book, and and I feel slightly hesitant going there because I know it's got a lot of political charge. That the Google the Googler who write the memo around um, oh, 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 yes, you yes, know, yes, gen yes. gender biases or sex differences. And um, I, I, I remember following that story and, and, and questioning a little bit, okay, so here's, a, here's an organization that's talked a lot about psychology, maybe, maybe was the first to really popularize it. And here we seem to have an example of someone expressing what appeared to be, you know, at least on the face of it, Reasonable, although maybe uncomfortable, or, or, or yes, views that, that may that may not be appreciated by others, and and he ends up getting getting fired. I mean, yeah, tell us about no, it. It's tricky. I I couldn't agree more with how you just put it. Right, I I believe, in fact, because it, psychological safety is not the same as trigger free. Right, in fact, in many right. ways, it's quite the opposite. It's 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 a space where we should be absolutely comfortable expressing potentially unpopular opinions. I, I think what, um, what's very important about that story, and again, I don't know, and I say this in the book, I don't know everything about it. I don't know how clear the company was in advance about boundaries, but I think what's problematic about the action is when you write an email, um, especially in a, a potentially inflammatory email, um, you must consider on a hot topic, right? You must consider the possibility that that's going to go public and go viral. I mean, it's not a surprise in, in the you know, 21st century. And so when you are potentially speaking on behalf of a large and and you know rep, a company whose reputation matters to it um, and to its other employees. I think you have a responsibility to be a steward of that organization. You know, as as an individual in a team and not in a you know not in a recorded way. I would like us to feel uh, you know incredibly comfortable taking those risks and saying, "Here's what I think," but you know, tell me what I'm missing. I, I you know I'm I just really bothers me that this happened. Yes. Now, consider that same conversation where I write it up, I send it to a colleague who's almost certainly going to send it to another who's almost certainly ultimately going to send it out viral into the blogosphere. Um, I can understand why an organization would say that's just outside the bounds of the behavior that reflects badly on people who don't hold those same opinions. 
and it's in a sense not fair to associate that with the company. So that's your as your own, you know, your own name, your own view. Feel free to, you know, do what you want. But so I don't know if that if that's um, if I'm being clear or not about the yeah. Program. I think I think you're suggesting that there's a, there's an when you're working for an organization and you're sending you're, you're creating something in the context of a dialogue within the organization you know be, be careful about writing it down yeah and, and, and way, I mean, writing it down and and you know sending it electronically yeah but i suppose that would that, that you might then argue that what you're talking then about is a fearful organization where people are fearful to write things down and well or, or at, level, at least, I mean, you've, we've got to figure out ways that you are not inadvertently speaking for thousands of people, um, and uh, that you know that may that may hold very different views. I mean, if you're going to do it, be super clear. You know, it, it, the whole thing has to be made um, super sharp dis distinction. This is how I feel. This is how I see it. I worry. Yeah, and, and I believe you know <laughs> that uh, our our pol politically correct hiring policies are um, leading us not to have the best talent. I think that's bunk, by the way. I mean, I, I think there's no um, no truth to the statement that um, um, women and men have different engineering prowess. Uh, and 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 on and on it goes. So it's um, but that's 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 beside the point. I mean, you can still you can still hold that opinion, and I think you have a you have then an obligation to look for disconfirming data and, and and so on. So I mean, what I what I said was I couldn't comment on whether the response Google's response was the right response because I don't know enough about the their clarity. I believe that in psychologically safe organizations. Um, there's a great deal of clarity about where the boundaries are, meaning um, we've got to know what we consider in our organization, team, et cetera, a blameworthy act, right? You know, because it's, mm -hmm. it's not the case. It's not the case um, that one should go out on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and get away with it, right? That's just not, that's not a, you know, that's obviously a ridiculous uh, statement. But where is the boundary? If, if the boundary is fuzzy, then people feel less safe. If the boundaries are clear, like we want to hear from you and please don't, you know, express um, potentially inflammatory opinions in writing that will go viral. I mean, I'm just saying yeah. that as a, and so I don't yeah. know, I don't know personally how clear uh, the boundaries were. Um, but I do know that adults have a responsibility to consider um, the the downstream effects of things that they do and say. Um, and I think organizations have a have a responsibility to be as clear as they can be about the boundaries, so that we can right. feel safe on you know on this side of the boundaries. And I suppose if if I have an intuition that what I'm going to say is going to be unpopular but I want to express it right? Uh, and I'm kind of going against the grain within an organization. Yes. There, there are some guidelines that allow me to still share it. Right. Maybe that's yes. something people need to think out of. I mean, it does, it does require people at the top kind of acknowledging certain biases uh, and the fact that there may be, you know, certain, certain yes. opinions that they don't favor, but nonetheless, there's still something they can do to create safety even in that context. 
Right. And if you're on, if you have, a, if you're not sure, ask for permission. You know, may I, I, I have something I, I would like to say, and I'd love to get feedback on it. I mean, as long as, you know, I think when each and every one of us believe that we still have something to learn, rather than inadvertently believing we have some kind of hotline to truth that, you know, gives us an accurate reality while all the, all others have a sort of flawed reality, you know, I state it that way to be absurd, but most of us have that sense of what we think is right. I mean, that's a spontaneous sense. And so, you know, maturity and wisdom is about recognizing that what we see is valid and by definition limited in some way. Like, right. So I'm curious, right. I want to learn from you. I want to find out what, you know, I want to find out what reactions you might have to this, view that I hold. So I want to share it with you in the spirit of learning, not in the spirit of pontificating and making sure everybody recognizes just how very right I am and how wrong-headed everybody else is. Okay. So uh, avoiding being right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. no. so I was dwelling on that James and Moore scenario and then I, it sort of, I, I made a few mental steps because then I thought, okay, well, he shared that article and, but maybe so let's think about why it was so inflammatory. And, and he's sharing that within a broader context, you know, that, w that was very hostile to his set of views. And yes. within, let's say, the liberal establishment, let's say. Um, uh, and perhaps had he shared a view that was more in line with the kind of consensus in, in, in that context, he, he wouldn't have had the same rebuke for the organisation. Um, and, and it sort of plays into this, this broader sense right now, at least, that in certain realms within social media and the media in general there is a kind of dominant na narrative and if we go against that we get censored and a lot of people on the right are now saying well there's a censorship, a censorship problem with the with the main social media platform and then i and then i got into this question of okay well what what they tend to talk about is free speech you know my free speech is being impinged because i can't express a you know a right-wing view on facebook or or youtube or whatever um so what's the difference between free speech and psychological safety? Do you, do you see a difference there? Well, I, I mean, I guess historically I've thought of psychological safety as free speech in a team, you know, okay. in, in a workplace. That doesn't necessarily mean face-to-face. -face. We could be a, a distributed team working on a you know, new product development project around the world. But, but in general, I, I mean, I've thought of this as free speech very, very, in a very proximal within a team uh, sense. Um, I, I think what you're touching on now is um, a very deep and long-standing issue of the the um, the challenge of free speech, right? I mean, it's it's in a sense it's something we all um, can readily subscribe to as a good idea, and then when we think about it, we realize. There are risks, right? I mean, with free speech comes responsibility. And with, with free speech comes um, the very real possibility that, that we will offend others. And um, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, sort of ethical and practical concerns that could come into this broader topic, um, which is probably a bit more far reaching than, you know, the, 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 the narrow, if you will, the narrow idea I've been pursuing, which is that in knowledge intensive workplaces, 
what people are more often than we think holding back, right? Holding back important parts of themselves, ideas, questions, concerns, um, and then we collectively are are losing out um, as a result. So, the, yeah. but but I think you're right. In a very small, you know, in a small in the microcosm, you do bump into some of the very same dilemmas that we bump into when we talk about free speech in a society, because free speech in a team also might lead to some ruffled feathers and you know and and you know and 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 negative emotions that you know we got to be okay with that we've got to be okay with negative emotions yeah but but i think it's it's useful to consider that parallel at least in my mind because then you start to because this is something that you know, democratic states have been grappling with for a long time right and yes. are there clues for how states manage this to bring into our organizations is, is that a, a potentially a rich invasive inquiry I think it's a very interesting question, and it's not one I've thought about before, but are there clues, right? Are there clues? Can we, can we identify any clues at the micro level that might help inform the, the larger tensions that we're sort of wrestling with? Um, and vice versa. Yeah, and I think maybe the, the one that I almost take for granted at this point and was talking about a little bit, but maybe should be more explicit about is that what goes hand in hand with psychological safety. And the reason I was initially interested in it and discovering it in the first place was because I care about learning. Like I care about um, improving and, and, and innovating and coming up with better and better ways to, to, to do the things that we do and, and care about, whether in an organization or in society. So um, what, what, what that means is for me, psychological safety and a learning mindset or attitude and behaviors almost must go hand in hand like the psychological safety allows the learning um and the and in a sense the learning and the learning attitude kind of makes it safe because we know explicitly that we don't know already like i mean if i know i'm not learning the you know it's the basic human challenge it's hard to learn when you already know um and so now let's take this back out to the societal level and free speech i think free speech maybe works best when people have a learning and growth mindset you know when they come to when they come to it with here's what i think i have a perfect right to express it and i have an obligation to care about and learn from the reaction that others have to what i say care about and learn from yeah. so yeah exactly. i care about your uh... Right, I should care because why? I mean, I don't want to be just speaking in a vacuum. If I'm speaking, I shouldn't be just pontificating on a soapbox and assuming that it's just fantastic the way it is. You know, I should. I think I have an obligation to care about the impact I'm having because I want to be effective. Right, so I want to care about the impact I'm having. Um, and in order to care about the impact I'm having, uh oh, I've got to be curious about the impact I'm having, which means I've got to learn. Which means I've yeah. got to overcome the sense that I already know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And which, yeah, which I think is a, it's actually a theme that we've touched on in several of the other episodes in terms of this this shift in leadership style um, 
from being the boss who knows and directs based on their knowledge to yes. the boss who doesn't know and, and actively seeks to engage the collective intelligence of those around them to, to maximize the chance of success. Okay, the boss who at most is setting and maybe even responsible for setting direction but doesn't have all the answers for how we get there. And yeah. even open to the possibility that this is the wrong direction, because as more is learned, we might find out, oh, we got to pivot, we got to go this way. Yeah. Yeah, and that's actually, yeah, that's an interesting, that, that's interesting to think about that in the context of psychological safety, that that may be part of the picture here, right? The leadership style and coming from a place of I know, to coming from, a, as we say, growth mindset, caring what your actions are and you know learn mindset which starts with humility and I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I can I can see that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and the other thing that you you talked about which I liked um and I hadn't ever really considered before was this idea of the silence voice asymmetry. And that <laughs> made it, it, it you know maybe explain why this is not doesn't actually emerge, right? Right. Right. I mean, if you if you um, if you have something to say that you're worried might not be well received, right? So it might be a question, and you think mm, my colleagues might think that's a stupid question, or it might be an idea. Uh, you know, this is probably not a very good idea. Any any of those kinds, or you made a mistake, and you don't want people to think less of you for it. So any of those kinds of ideas or or concerns in, inside your head. Um, now we think about the moment of choice in a sense. Sometimes it's not very conscious, but that moment of choice is I can, I can let it out or I can keep it in. Now, if I let it out, who gains? Well, kind of we do, the collective, the team, you know, maybe the customer or the patient. Who, but, but how confident am I that that gain will happen? Well, not very. And when will that gain happen? you know, later, some other point in time. And then if I, if I sort of ask, well, who gains when I'm silent? It's I do, right? I stay safe from, you know, judgment for another second or two or a minute. And how confident am I that staying silent keeps me safe? A hundred percent. But so you get, it's, it's sort of a very powerful asymmetry from, you know, collective gain and uncertain gain to personal gain and highly certain gain from voice to silence. And you realize, oh, of course, right? Of course, people don't speak up easily on the edge, right? When, when a, you know, when there's a, when there's a potential interpersonal risk that they face. And so that's why I say, you know, in work environments where they, where, where we create a bit more candor and, and, willingness to speak up are unusual and they have to be created deliberately they, they rarely just exist without any anybody trying to make them exist yeah and i i always get the i always get the uh well i get the metaphor of, them, of rice fields right is it, is it, is it like a field, is something you have to tend every day you know and very quickly right water the plants yes yeah it's not like um you know, it's not like sort of European farming where, you, farming where you can sort of sow the seeds and then and then ignore it for a few seasons and come back and reap your harvest, right? So right, right. It's it's something an, an everyday thing, and um, and and of course the context is 
always shifting and, and, and new people are finding power and authority within the group and, and their behaviors are going are to affect the rest of the team. So it, it's, a, yeah, it, it's a, a constant, there's a constant need to nurture it. Yes. I can see that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, the other, the other thing I was reflecting on is I was thinking about when, when have I felt this? So like, what's my example of, of lacking stuff, mm. lack of personal stuff? And I was thinking of a project that is very early when I was fairly junior, and we had this, this project to map out all of the technical systems within this organization. And we had this really expensive tool to do it in, and it's taking forever and going on and on. And I, and I, huh. you know, and I kept challenging and like, come on, and the, the, the boss who was, I won't name it. The, from the north of England, it was very straight talking. And basically, it's, it's words we you know, suck it up and can't pay you, right? You know, uh, this is our job, we're getting paid for it. And I reflected on this and I thought, yeah, if, had we had psychological safety and had he listened and cared and I felt free, that would have been the first step for me thinking about, well, how, how what could we do creatively here to actually add value, right? How could we take this and do something different or change the focus? And so all of that creativity would have been unleashed had I had that yeah the, the prerequisite of the safety in the first place but very quickly I got the signal that this is not okay so yeah yeah and the signals can be so subtle right it can be a glance it can be a you know an explicit message like in the, in the case of your story mm. and 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 likewise the signals that voice is okay are are subtle too you know you can you can pause you can express interest you can look um uh, appreciative when when someone does offer an idea whether you agree with it or not and you, you're free to um, say I disagree and here's why but you sort of appreciate the effort and willingness to, to, to do that and we all you know we've all been I think my argument is we've all been in both situations and you're a whole lot happier to wake up in the morning and go to the you know the, the place which is happy to see you and hear, and hear from you than, than the other one. Right. And I was wondering, from, just from your personal experience, whether you, given you've become much more attuned to this, have you found yourself in situations where you've not felt safe and you found a way to make it more safe? Yeah, you know, I mean, I have certainly found myself in, in situations where it's not quite safe and, and, and especially not, not so much, you know, um, dangerous, but, but in the sense of, doubt that my voice is welcome here right and you just and I have found myself holding back despite believing I have something worthwhile to say and um, I, I think I'm not proud of those those moments um, and I think and I understand why they happen there's a sort of and, and here's the to me the one of the things that is the most frequent culprit is a, a belief, which is probably inaccurate, that the other person doesn't want to learn. You know, that the other person or the boss or what have you um, is fully convinced of the rightness of his views. And because I have made that assessment, which is unfair, you know, it's unfair to make that mm. assessment and then hold it against the person and deprive the team of a dissenting view because I've, you know, to put a phrase to it, I've written that person off, right? It's, it's mm. an utterly unfair thing to do and it's a self-protective thing to do. And I've certainly done it. 
So yeah. how do you overcome that? You know, you have to, um, I think it starts in those kinds of situations. It starts with accepting responsibility um, for trying to make an impact, you know, accept the responsibility as a, as a peer or a subordinate that, that, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here for a reason. I mean, I'm not just here to take up a spot, right? I'm, I'm here to contribute. So I, I should do that. And I may be wrong, right? I may be missing something. That's okay. I mean, I can offer something and get feedback that says, no, I see it differently. And here's why. And that's also got to be okay. I mean, because sometimes when we're unwilling to offer our view, it also means we're unwilling to have it modified. Mm. Keep it to ourselves. That could be a reason, right? Right? So it's, it can be just a, you know, a little, it can happen with a little bit of excess confidence as well. Yeah. So you're playing the same game on the in, inside that that person might be playing right on the outside. By Exactly. Which is so ironic. Um, but but I fear uh, sometimes true. So the you know what would you do about it is is clear. You have to you have to take the risk and offer it and 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 maybe ask permission. You know is this a good it, you know if this is a good time I'd love to suggest a different way of thinking about it or a different way of having this conversation. But but um, so making it safe I think starts with the paradox of you have to act as if it's safe. Mm. And I certainly relate to that idea of asking permission. I mean, I've been learning painfully with, with my partner the value of asking first, are you available to listen? Right, right. Are you in right. a place where you can listen to some feedback? Yeah, often she'll say no, and I'm like, and I actually appreciate that. Like, that's okay, yeah, right. because that's much better than having a really bad conversation about something you actually think might be important. <laughs> so asking yeah. permission and creating, you know, creating the right opportunity uh, to do it is, is, is crucial. Right. And the other thing that's just come to mind, actually, as we've been speaking, is um, is non nonviolent communication. Have you come across that? Yes. Not. Um, I, I have to admit, I haven't dug in as deeply as I'd like to. Yeah. I mean, I remember the um, Microsoft CEO um, speaking about it as taking it into the workplace there. But it's a very specific sort of mode of communication for uh, which I found particularly valuable in terms of dealing with those feedbacks. Because it's all about not making the other person wrong and all about sort of me only, my own uh, sort of reactions and needs, and, and but, but not spreading anything to, to yes. the other person, right? There's a discipline around that. Yeah. So it's, that's very similar to um, the, the reframing that Chris Argerus, famous scholar mm. years ago, described in terms of... Um, uh, a learning oriented conversation. It sounds very similar to the nonviolent communication because it starts with the frame that I have a valid point of view and I may be missing something. Right. And I have a a sort of a responsibility to, uh, to, to learn. And, and if I go into a conversation with that mindset, I am so so much less likely to do harm, you know, deliberate or otherwise, right. Because I'm really going into the conversation hoping to educate, but also hoping to learn. Right. Yeah. And those are both, isn't it? It has to be both. It has, it has to, to be to both. Learn. Right. I have a responsibility to teach and to learn. Even if I'm just teaching about my, you know, my opinion, that's still, I'm still teaching. I, I want to, I want to explain to you how I see it, right? That's a, that's an act of teaching or an act of advocacy. 
and then an act of inquiry, which is how do you see it? Or what am I missing? Or how does that sound to you? Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot, a lot of sense. And when you ever hear this, it makes complete sense. And then in the moment and when your emotions are, are high, it can be, <laughs> can be difficult to, to reach, for, reach for this. Extremely difficult, yes. But that's the, that's what, yeah. But it's about learning, learning over time, or at least for me. Yes. To, to apply these these disciplines actually in, in in safe environments on the sort of yes. the shallower slopes, and then building it up, so it's a bit bit closer to hand when it comes yes. to the big moments. So. And that was a conversation I I used to have with Chris, you know, dec two decades ago, which was, I think I can be what he called model two. I think I can be learning oriented when the threat is low. You know, but when the, when the threat is high, you know, angry boss, that's high threat, you know, I'm going to freeze up and, and have a very, you know, model one mindset, right? But if I, you know, if I'm, if I'm uh, um, feeling like this really is a space where I can learn and grow, I'm, I'm all ears and I'm all, you know, I'm all willing to take those, those risks. That, well, you see, that's interesting, isn't it? Because then, it, it, again, we're coming back to psychological safety. So even sort of developing and learning these, let's say, more sophisticated communication techniques or more mindful, whatever we might, or more learning-oriented uh, or empathy-oriented communication techniques, requ again, requires us back to this idea of being prerequisite, requires that safety for people to actually develop the skill. Yeah. Yes. See that. Well, um, it's, this has been yeah, a fantastic <laughs> conversation. And yeah, it's got it's it's a few areas I wasn't expecting to go, but that's always the, the fun of these um, these conversations. I, I wanted to ask now, where, where are you taking this in terms of the research? What's the what's the vanguard of this research right now? Well, for me, I'm uh, the most important thing to me in this research on on psychological safety is how do you get it? And I, you know, I have some, and in chapter seven of the book, I talk about some um, recommendations that are research inspired, I guess. Um, but what I have not done and what I am really hoping to do is in an action research sense, work with one or more organizations trying to change how they work. And I want to be clear too, psychological safety isn't for me the goal. It's, it's the means to the goal, right? I mean, the goal is, you know, agile, energetic um, workplaces where we are serving our mission as effectively as we can. And my smaller argument is we need psychological safety to do that. So um, I'm eager to roll up my sleeves and sort of find out more about what works, what gets in the way, and how it can unfold over time. Mm. And uh, uh, that's, that's interesting. Have you got some early takers? That... Yes, yeah, I do. So nothing is, um, I don't have anything absolutely underway yet, but I have a few, I think, very good feelers um, that might soon be underway. Well, that's actually exciting. So if you, you're starting to develop some hypotheses of what might work and and team up right i really would i don't want to do this myself anymore i want to i want to team up with um other thoughtful people which can be on the research side and on the 
practice side to kind of share views and experiences in some real setting. Right. And could you give us a flavor of the sort of top two or three hypotheses that you'd like to test that you think? Well, I, I think it's, um, it's a, the, I'm not sure I could even articulate them as hypotheses, but I mm. think if this sounds like a hypothesis, fine, but a proposition that it has to be both top down and bottom up at the same time. And by top down, I mean, I think we really, we do need support for an interest in this kind of journey um, from the very top of an organization. Um, but then an immense um, invitation and openness to how it's going to look and play out in different parts, tasks, regions, et cetera, so that um, as, as people um, as people experiment uh, together, those experiments are really sanctioned and welcomed. So that's one. That's a kind of macro architecture, if you will. And then on a more... Um, a process proposition would be, sorry, like it or not, it's trial and error, right? We're gonna we're going to together generate some hypotheses and together try some things, some of which will work and some of which will not work. Right. Okay. Well, certainly the top down boss about makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And there's a there's a parallel there with agile working, which again has been featured a lot on this podcast, yeah. is that people get so far with agile working uh, within a, an organization that's relatively hostile at the top that it's, it's always limited. Right, which gives us a little bit of a chicken and an egg problem, right? Because it's, mm. you know, agile working, psychological safety, agile working, so, you know, it's all, um, it's hard to know where you start. So I think you just start where you are. And Yeah. Good. Well, Thank you so much. And again, for those who've really enjoyed the conversation, this is this is the work of the fearless organization, creating psychological safety in the workplace for learning, innovation, and growth. We'll we'll put the link to the book. Thank you. Is there anywhere else that you would point people to? There's also a TED talk, isn't there? Yes, although you know, I think um, the TED talk is is well, I've, there's a TEDx talk on psychological safety that's mm. very short and and useful for some training purposes. I hear. And then the longer one on, on teaming, you know, sort of teaming up with strangers to get big things done. And, um, but, but I think when I write, I'm, I, I always feel more, at least I have the opportunity to keep smoothing it over to get it right. So I'm, I'm happy to recommend the writings. Okay. Yeah, so we'll put all of that in the description. It just leaves me to, to thank you for your time. It's been a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Well, so have I, and I learned a lot from it, so thank you. I'm good. I'm glad. All right. Thanks once again. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.